Okay, everybody, it is, uh, let's see, March, and it appears to be March 14th. Um, I'm going to hand back, I hope everybody had a good break, uh, you know, get some rest, catch up a little bit. Um, today, we're going to do a little bit of pre-Susan Wolf conversation. Susan Wolf writes about meaning in life, and so we're making a big transition away from what we've been studying to this related but different issue, meaning in life. So we'll do a little bit of kind of preface to that. And um, uh, I'm going to hand back these exams that I think there's maybe a little bit of confusion with some people put their exams back in the pile and then sent them back to me. Uh, I don't need these exams, so you can just keep them. And uh, But I want to really make sure that everyone who took the exam has their exam, especially if they had trouble, because you know the grader wrote some comments uh, on the exams in the form of abbreviations. And you know the abbreviation key is on Canvas and announcements. So I'll pass back the exams and make sure that if you uh, didn't get your exam yet, that you take the exam and try to learn from, you know, where you didn't do well, if you didn't do well, because our next exam is coming up a week from Thursday, so it's coming up very fast. I mean, just send it down a I mean, here I can do it. Okay. So exams, uh, right, so we have our second exam is coming up a week from Thursday. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Just to keep things interesting. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, also um, about the exam that's coming up a week from this Thursday. So the exam is on March 24th. Um, I'll post just like the exams, just like last time, only it's going to be worth 200 points instead of 90 points. So this is a real exam. And it's going to be also, you know, more, uh, you know, a little bit more demanding uh, because it's worth so many more points. So, uh, but it'll be just like last time in terms of structure. And I'll also post the questions for the exam uh, on Thursday. Uh, so you have a week to work on the exam, just like last time. And we won't have uh, a quiz this coming weekend because you can just work on the exam. Right. Uh, so I'm just going to mention a couple things, a couple announcements. Um, remember that if you're interested in uh, any philosophy business, um, our students, our majors and minors, have what's uh, you know a club, a philosophy club, where they talk about different philosophical issues each week and other stuff in philosophy classes. And they meet every Thursday from 2 to 3 in Schmidt Hall 242, which is our philosophy seminar room. A nice room. Wanted to mention uh, philosophy for lunch coming up this Thursday because it's a good one. Um, this Thursday, the, the session topic is gender and identity. Um, we have a faculty member, Megan Robeson, who teaches courses regularly on feminist philosophy. 
And, uh, and so this is, you know, in uh, that wheelhouse. Here's a description because it's a really interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about self-identity as we go. And it's something I'm really interested in. And the issue of gender identity is a really interesting, complex example of identity, of self-identity. And so here's what, uh, here's what she says about this uh, session. Gender seems bound up with identity, but what kind of identity is gender? On the one hand, it is deeply personal and uniquely mine. On the other hand, gender is also a social category. The bigger, or sorry, it's also a social category. The terms woman, man, non-binary, or bigender refer not only to an individual person, but a social group. Even more difficult is the issue that gender cannot be isolated from other social categories, such as race, class, or sexuality. In this week's Philosophy for Lunch, we'll read and discuss selections from feminist philosophers such as Simone de Beauvoir, uh, Judith Butler, and others, and we'll reflect on the complex relationship between gender and identity. So um, that's a really interesting session. This Thursday, 11.30 AM, Dixon Hall, Cohen Lounge, first floor, can't miss it. Uh, to be honest, there's pizza. After, like late in the session, uh, the pizza gets uh, revealed. Um, and um, I think I have, I have some more announcements, but maybe I'll just leave it at that for now. And, and now I'll do a little bit of a, you know, bit of a recap and preface to our next section of the course, the next, uh, I mean, in a way, in a way you can think of the course as divided into two parts and we're gonna begin the second part with this work on meaning in life and focusing on first, uh, Susan Wolf. I mean, the interesting thing is that after Susan Wolf, we're gonna turn to the philosophy of technology and we're gonna get some philosophy of technology, but actually the reason for doing that is that we're gonna get through this philosophy of technology a related way of thinking about meaning in life. So really, after Susan Wolf, we do some philosophy of technology and we'll get some good philosophy of technology, but really my reason for doing it is not so much philosophy of technology, although I love philosophy of technology, but to continue this discussion about meaning in life. So we're gonna get that in sort of a subtle way through this philosopher, Albert Borgman, who's a philosopher of technology toward the end of the course. And then we have an open, depending on how fast we go, we have an open couple of weeks at the end of the course, which I'll talk about later. So, you know that the big question of the course is what makes a life good? We're studying various theories of what makes a life good. Even though Fred Feldman doesn't like using the word happiness, for simplicity's sake, we can say that we began by studying two very common theories of happiness, hedonism and desire theory. Hedonism, we know, makes the case that happiness is all about maximizing pleasure. And desire theory makes the case that happiness is all about satisfying desires. By saying that these are theories of happiness, 
I'm being a little bit critical of these theories um, because, you know, Feldman presents hedonism as a theory of the good life. And I'm being a little bit critical by saying, well, these are just about happiness because it seems to me, and maybe you're starting to get this drift, that there seems to be more to a good life than merely happiness. And so that's kind of where, where we're, how I think about that. Um, you know, the point is that there seems to be more to a good life than merely satisfying desires or maximizing pleasure. Both, we've sort of seen through criticizing both theories that they seem to leave a lot out. We've seen that both theories leave out morals. You know, they don't, we saw, you know, in chapter one of the Feldman book that he's very specific about saying that an account of the good life doesn't need to consider morals. And that seems a little bit, you know, problematic. Uh, same thing with desire theory. You know, we're not talking about moral philosophy very much in this course, partly because there's another introduction, 100 level philosophy course, philosophy 102 called ethics, which is all about moral philosophy. But because we're thinking about the good life and because there seems to be this intuition that there's something to do with morals that is relevant to a good life, it's sort of looming in the background. And so it comes up once in a while and it sort of presents itself like, oh, you're going to have a theory of the good life and you're not going to have a say anything about morals. It feels a little bit weird. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. But um, another worry that we've had about um, hedonism and desire theory is they also both seem to sort of demote other seemingly central components of a good life, like friends, family, knowledge, art, achievement or accomplishment, freedom, self-identity. Sometimes we've referred to these as objective goods. And, you know, there is a theory of a good life, which is called objective list theory, which Feldman refers to in his chapter one, which is basically just to give a list of the goods that you think are necessary and sufficient for a good life. And the reason I say that hedonism and desire theory kind of demote these goods is that they cash them out in terms of either pleasure or satisfaction of desires. You know, so a hedonist says, okay, maybe friendship is a great part of a good life, but only insofar as being friends with someone aids you in maximizing pleasure. So that feels like you're sort of demoting the value of friendship. Same thing in desire theory. The idea is that, okay, maybe friendship is an important part of a good life, but only insofar as it satisfies desires to have a friend. And so it feels like because the main principle measure of a good life in these two theories is either maximizing pleasure or satisfying desires, these other things that seem very good only get into a life that's deemed good by these theories 
when something like friendship or freedom or knowledge results in more pleasure than pain or results in satisfaction of desires. And so it feels a little bit strange that these things get demoted. And we've sort of returned again and again to that. And we saw that Nozick's experience machine thought experiment brings out this kind of problem for hedonism. You know, I mentioned one of the objective goods that I think is interesting is um, has something to do with self-identity. And, um, you know, we saw that Nozick's criticism of hedonism involves the claim that it seems we wouldn't it seems that plugging into the machine is not best for a person for one reason, because it's a kind of suicide, because you want to be a particular kind of person, and you can't be a particular kind of person by being plugged into the machine. Um, but, you know, Nozick also says that you don't want to plug into the machine because you want to actually do things in the world. Maybe that's a kind of achievement. Um, maybe you want to actually be there for people. Maybe that's a kind of a friendship thing. And you can't get any of those things if you plug into the machine. But if you plug into the machine, you can maximize pleasure. So you can live a good life according to um, a uh, hedonist. Um, so, so we saw some of these kinds of concerns what I'm saying that, you know, I'm saying that the, um, that these theories kind of demote these goods like friendship, knowledge, achievement, freedom, when they cash them out in terms of pleasure, satisfaction of desires. And we saw that start to emerge, you know, in one place with, uh, in the experience machine where, where Robert Nozick, you know, makes that point in the sense that you miss out on a certain number of these objective goods if you just plug into the machine to maximize pleasure. If you had, you know, I, I didn't want to slow down the course too much, but if, if we had looked at the experience machine as a criticism of desire theory, which if you look at the end of the Ben Bramble article, he does, and Ben Bramble thinks that you can get a good criticism of desire theory also through the experience machine. And the way that he gets there, you know, in the, in the version of the experience machine that we read, Robert Nozick uses the terms of desire and want a lot. Like, you know, we don't want to plug into the machine. We want to live. We want to be. We want to make a difference in the world. And then that sounds like, well... It sounds like if that's what we want, then the desire theory is not going to recommend plugging into the machine. But actually, Ben Bramble gets a pretty good criticism of desire theory from the experience machine, too. But we're just not going to you know, talk about it because I don't want to slow down too much. We considered other um, serious problems for the desire theory. Um, you know, One problem was how do you when you first hear about the desire theory, it sounds like, oh, satisfying desires is the key to happiness. That sounds pretty good. But then we immediately start to think about, well, which desires are we talking about? Because it turns out that 
satisfying current or present or actual desires is clearly not going to lead to happiness in many cases. And so then the desire theorists come up with this idea that what they're really talking about are not actual desires, present desires, current desires. What they're really talking about are informed desires or rational desires. And we saw how that leads to trouble too. Um, but we also then saw that even though the desire theory sounds simple and obvious, it turns out that desires can be shaped by social and political forces and that that can present a problem for making sense of how you can understand happiness in terms of satisfying desires. We looked at this example of a woman who grows up in a sexist household and who has her desires shaped down, in fact, by the stereotype, the stereotype put into place by a sexist community so that even when, you know, the idea was that a girl in that kind of an environment might not desire as much for herself as her brothers desire for themselves because of the sexist community gears expectations for women down. And, and so then you can look at this girl's situation and think, well, that's not going to be a happy life if she satisfies her desires because her desires have been shaped downward by this sexist community. That's the criticism anyway. And that's a criticism of desire theory. And that's the criticism called the adaptive preference criticism. So, I mean, you may disagree. You may, I mean, I think, I think whenever I teach this, there's a fair number of people who are pretty happy with hedonism or pretty happy with desire theory. Um, but personally, um, I kind of find these theories not very, not very satisfying once we look at all of the criticisms. I think some of the criticisms really land. And so I don't think that these theories, you know, in, in my opinion, um, really give us a strong answer to what makes a life good, what, what is a good life. And so having considered these, the next step that I want to move to is thinking about what a good life is in a slightly different way. And Susan Wolf, who's um, you know, a philosopher, a currently teaching philosopher in North Carolina, has a really influential kind of amazing theory that takes a really fruitful twist. And what she says is that a good life has three dimensions. One dimension is happiness. And she seems to talk in her writing as if, whatever, just take happiness to be a hedonistic theory of happiness. That's fine. But you might also think of happiness in her theory as a desire satisfaction uh, approach to happiness. But again, three dimensions to a good life. One dimension is happiness. The other dimension is morals. And so this is going to come up a little bit when we talk about her theory. But the third dimension is meaningfulness. And so she has a theory of meaning in life. What makes life meaningful? 
And so her theory of a good life is that it has these three dimensions, meaningfulness, morals, happiness. And it's, I don't know, there's something, after struggling with uh, all these different theories of happiness for a number of years, to see this theory that has these, this three-dimensional account of a good life is kind of amazing. Her theory has problems, and she acknowledges the problems. But it's really interesting and really thought-provoking to go through. So what we're going to do next, although we'll talk about, we'll have to talk about these dimensions of meaningfulness. We'll have to talk about these dimensions of happiness and morals as we're going. We're going to focus on this dimension of meaningfulness and try to figure out, try to answer this question through Susan Wolf. What is meaning in life? And, you know, in a way, I swear it sounds insane to say that we're going to answer this question, but we really are going to give an answer to this question. There are going to be problems with it, but it's going to be a really fruitful, interesting answer. And it all comes from Susan Wolf, who wrote this great book and all these papers. And we're going to read um, a couple of her papers. So, but before I start doing the Susan Wolf business, I thought we would just stop for a second and see if anyone wants to talk at all about hedonism or desire theory or the criticisms of hedonism and desire theory or just ask any kind of general orientation questions. It's kind of a good place to just take a pause and see if anyone has any thoughts about those things that we've studied or questions. Suggest everybody take a drink. I mean, it's just a nice, if anything's confusing to you, you can raise it now. I mean, I know you're not reacting to that question, but. Uh, it, it seemed to me in the Feldman reading that at one point, uh, hedonism started to merge into the desire theory when Feldman gives the example of the playboy executive and all his sensual pleasures, yeah. and he criticizes them by all their drawbacks, and says, well, if you were looking longer term, more widely, yeah. you would see that maybe uh, getting a, a single dedicated spouse was better than having a, a lot of different uh, affairs, for instance, or eating less was better than eating more. But it seemed like at that point, He's redefining pleasure in such a way that it almost melts into desires. That instead of partying all the time, what you want to do is uh, maybe study so you can have a more satisfying, meaningful career. It almost sounds like it's becoming hedonism. It's turning into desire. The hedonist is criticizing these rather simple, vulgar pleasures and turning them into criticizing them by wider, longer-term desires. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, inter it's an interesting place in Feldman's unfolding of DH. Um, and, and remember what's happening there. He's responding to this criticism that hedonism is 
a doctrine worthy of swine, that hedonism is a vulgar sensualism, that hedonism might be a good theory for animal life, but it's not a good theory for human life. And then his reply is to say, no, wait a minute. Let's not just focus on immediate pleasures, but let's focus on a whole life. And then he gives this answer that involves these points that John's making. Um, it does sound different. You know, it definitely sounds different than a kind of common version of hedonism, which is just satisfy pleasure or just, you know, experience pleasure, experience more pleasure than pain. But it's that kind of common theory that got hedonists into this trouble of being open to this criticism uh, that hedonism is a vulgar sensualism. So I, I grant you that it sounds... It can sound a little bit like desire theory, and they, he might even use some of that language. But, but here's, a, here's an attempt to try to say why it's hedonism. In the end, what counts is maximizing pleasure. And if you can get more pleasure in your life by having a long-term relationship than you can get by having a lot of one-night stands. And Feldman thinks you can because Feldman thinks there's so much pain that is involved in one-night stands. You know, likely because you're... I mean, not just so much pain, but there's so much more pleasure in a long-term relationship than there is in one-night stands. I mean, it's often the case that if you've had... Now I feel the desire to talk about this because it's so fascinating for just a second. That if you've had a good long-term relationship, in a way, nothing can be more depressing than a one-night stand. Because it's so shallow and one-dimensional. Uh, so that, that's kind of what he's trying to get at. That if you've been able to share your life with someone in a meaningful, long relationship, that has so many dimensions of pleasure uh, that, that one-night stands just don't even come close. Uh, but it's one of those things where someone who hasn't had a good long-term relationship might not know that. They might think, oh, one-night stands are amazing. But they're not, um, and, uh, and that's why. Anyway, so, so his idea is still a hedonism because he's still... claiming that what makes life good comes down to getting as much pleasure as you can. But he just makes that move of saying, let's consider life as a whole, and let's take seriously the idea of delaying gratification so that you're not just focused on how much pleasure can I get right now, but you're focused on you know, a longer term view where it's like, well, if I invest in this relationship, I can have more pleasure in a year than if I just keep having one night stands. Or, you know, if I, I'm trying to think of what the, if I drink moderately, I can have more pleasure than if I get really wasted once a week or something because there's so much pain on the other end of that. Um, so, uh, so that's the, anyway, that's the attempt to make it remain a hedonism. 
that when push comes to shove, it's about maximizing pleasure. And even if it's described a little bit in a way that makes it sound like a desire theory, it's still at bottom focused on maximizing pleasure. Whereas if it were a desire theory, everything would come down to satisfying desires. Another part of it, though, that sounds like desire theory, or it's a similar move that desire theorists make, is desire theorists also want to say at some point, let's stretch out the timeline. Let's think about long-term desires. Let's think about higher-order desires. This is probably what you had in mind, that there's this similar move in desire theory to not focus on just immediate current desires, but to think about you know, what are your larger desires? And this feels a lot like Feldman's extending of the timeline or delaying gratification. So it is fascinating to me also that they have this similar structure when they try to unfold their theories. But what makes hedonism hedonism is that when push comes to shove, it's all about maximizing pleasure. What makes desire theory desire theory is that when push comes to shove, it's all about satisfying desires. Someone's desire might be to, to maximize pleasure, but it need not be. Someone can desire something that's not pleasurable or not as pleasurable as something else, and according to desire theory, satisfying that desire will, will make them happy. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating though, to talk about these two, these two theories because they do have these similar argumentative structures. That is a really interesting place in the theories. Any other thoughts or? Okay. Well, okay, I'm going to do um, a two minute palate cleanser by telling you some other things uh, about uh, MSU. Um, these are just like minor announcements. You should think, you got, how many people are freshmen in this class? Okay, yeah, so a lot. Think about, I mean, MSU wants you to get a major and to, you know, get moving and to be able to plan. Ultimately, I'm going to try to pitch philosophy a little bit, but I'm pitching everything. I'm saying whatever it is that you major in, major in something. And if you're not sure what you want to major in, minor in something. Because most minors at MSU can easily convert to majors. And so if you want to just try something out and get your foot in the door at some program, minor first. And then you can convert it into a major, you know, usually pretty easily. Um, so now I'm gonna, you know, promo philosophy for a second, that a philosophy minor is a really good thing on a transcript because it shows that you're capable of doing some impressive and abstract cognitive work, which might and probably will really complement your major. And so philosophy minor can be something that looks good to an employer or to, you know, certainly graduate school or, you know, any kind of graduate study. Um, in our major, we really have it set up so that the minor very seamlessly converts into a major if you want it, if you want to. And also in our department, the minor is really easy because you just take any six philosophy courses that you want. Um, this one counts as one, and so there's only five more. And there are some requirements, like you have to take two 300-level courses, you know, but, but essentially you just take whatever you want. 
And all of those courses that you take are going to fold into the major if you choose to go into the major later on. Anyway, you know, there's also now not, uh, now I'm not plugging philosophy anymore. If you, whatever you want to do, whatever major you want to get into, you know, you enroll in majors and minors on Nest, you yourself. And sometimes you need approval from a department if, if they have some kind of, you know, approval process, or maybe you need a certain GPA, but you'll be prevented from enrolling in whatever major, if that's true or minor. In our case, we don't. But what I was going to say is you do this on Nest, and if you want, uh, you know what I'll do? I'll post on Canvas in an announcement a link that will take you to a step-by-step instructions for declaring a minor or a major on Nest. And it's really easy, and you can just follow the instructions and declare a minor or a major. But like I say, you don't, you know, for your best experience at Montclair State, try not to wait too long to declare a major or a minor, at least a minor, because, uh, you know, you can really plan out your time here to really get the most bang for your buck if you declare early, because then you can start talking to advisors, they can start mapping out a four-year plan, you can squeeze in extra classes, you can figure out ways to double dip. There are a lot of interesting things you can do, but you can't do them if you wait too long to, to declare. So do that. Um, okay, so let's talk. Or does anyone have any questions about any of that? Because it is sort of a practical difficulty to get all that stuff sorted out for people. I had a, I'm in a very weird mood today because I just got back from traveling and it's so strange. I was in rural Minnesota where my parents live. I didn't grow up in rural Minnesota. I grew up in Minneapolis, which is like a big city of the Midwest. Um, it was so strange to be really in the middle of nowhere for several days. And it's very strange to be back here. But I had a nice time. Okay. Um, so Susan Wolf. Now we're going to just jump in and we're going to start talking about Susan Wolf, start talking about meaning in life. It's good to think about what she's not going to talk about first. Um, she's not going to talk about what the meaning in life is or what the human purpose in life is. And one way to think about this is to think about that for a religious person, for a very religious person, the meaning of life or whether life has a particular meaning or a particular purpose has to do with figuring out what God wants of us and then trying to do that thing. And if you're a very religious person, all that takes place through theology. You know, that all takes place in religion. Um, so if you're a very religious person, you sort all this out through the church, not through, or, you know, through a book or something, scriptures, not through philosophy. So that's not our subject. Our subject is not what is the meaning of life, for example, for a religious person, or what is the purpose of life for a religious person. This topic of meaning in life is different. And what Susan Wolf is going to try to do is to try to figure out whether we can make certain decisions and engage in certain actions or projects that will create 
meaning in our life. So the idea is going to be that there are certain things you can do, certain activities, certain behaviors that can be meaningful, and they can create meaning in your life. And we're going to try to figure out what kinds of things create meaning in your life. But it's a different question than what is the meaning of life in life, or what is the meaning of life, or what is the purpose of life. That's more of a religious way of putting the question. So this is a little bit more piecemeal, where we're trying to figure out how you can engage in certain behavior to, to inject meaning in your life. Let's read a little bit. Uh, let's look at page 838, column 2. Eight thirty-eight, column two, at the top. First full paragraph. She says, "I'm just sometimes I'm trying to point you to places in the text where she's saying what I'm saying." She says, "Let us begin, however, with the other question, that of understanding what it is to seek meaning in life. What do we want when we want a meaningful life? What is it that makes some lives meaningful and others less so?" That's what she's trying to figure out. So one way that she tries to approach this a few pages later is to try to itemize three different kinds of lives that are not meaningful. And so she, I mean, this is kind of an interesting paper because she, this was a a small chapter in an intro philosophy book, actually. Um, And then next we'll read a real journal article that she wrote. But her way of trying to get into this topic in this particular reading is to begin, sort of not at the very beginning, but in a a bit, by talking about kinds of lives that lack meaning. And she's going to focus on three. So do you remember this first kind of life that she talks about called the blob life? And does anyone want to say anything about that? Like, do you remember some things about what that looks like? What that life is like? Exactly as good... Sorry, I feel like I have to say for the podcast that we're talking about the blob life. Um, So we have this example on the table of someone who watches TV all day and drinks beer all day. And that's a passive life that seems meaningless... Uh, I wonder if you can think of any other examples of activity that people sometimes engage in that if you just filled your life with it, it would be similarly uh, like this. Yeah. Spending the day at a bar. Yeah, spending the day at a bar, I guess that's true. Although, maybe, I don't know. It's funny because I used to be a musician and I would I spent so many days setting up in bars in the afternoon, and the conversations that people have in bars in the afternoon are sometimes hilarious, but they're also fascinating and sometimes kind of interesting. Maybe there's a, I mean, it's interesting that there is a kind of a community at a bar that makes it maybe not quite as bad as just sitting at home drinking beer and watching TV. There's some kind of, you know, maybe. But I'm, I'm with you, basically. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, but that's, I mean, that, that could be a certain kind of passivity, but 
it could be more active. It could avoid that uh, passive aspect. Yeah. Yeah, that could. And whatever you do, if it's. But you could imagine, though, someone who's like a, a writer who writes, you know, great philosophy but never leaves home, almost. I don't know. Did you? Eric, did you have a. Yeah, I was going to say sleep. Sleep, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe sleeping all the time. Hmm. Well, I was going to. I was wondering, like. Um, I mean, I guess something like playing video games all the time, I guess you could also say that that's in a way kind of active. Um, I don't know, people sometimes want to defend video game playing that way, that you know, you're developing skills. It can even be socially interactive if you're having some kind of chats while you're doing it. Um, but, but sometimes philosophers will pick on video game playing all day. Sometimes philosophers will pick on just like drinking, getting high all day or something. Sometimes philosophers will pick on examples like doing crossword puzzles, which is a little bit of a different kind of example, and it seems to activate your mind. So I don't know about that one. Yeah. What if like, someone were to spend the day reading or something like that could be something that they really enjoy with? Because it would count as a passive lifestyle. Yeah, it seems like she wants to distinguish between something like sitting and reading versus watching TV. And so she must be thinking about some kind of TV watching that's really passive, that doesn't involve a lot of intellectual activity or, or creative activity. You know, one thing interesting about reading, if you're reading, like, let's say, fiction, you have to use your imagination a lot. And that can be very active. There's certainly some kinds of TV watching and film watching that requires you to use your, your imagination and can afford or foster aesthetic experiences. So, so we have to be careful about what we're pointing to as TV watching because some TV watching can be very engaging and nowadays it's complicated because I guess, you know, she wrote this in 2006, I think, and uh, Nowadays, what's so weird is that the line between film and TV is completely weirdly blurred. And sometimes, I mean, I would argue that sometimes a really good series can be as artistically rewarding as, I mean, certainly, as a film. I mean, there are certainly bad films. But even a good film, even take a great film and take some really great series, um, I mean... Weirdly, my wife and I are re-watching Mad Men right now, and that's just such an amazingly written series. But you can think of something like The Sopranos, or maybe, I don't know, my wife and I talk about this list, like the first two seasons of Homeland, um, The Sopranos, The Americans. These are all really well-written shows. Um, anyway, so she can't be talking about that kind of TV watching, because that's really creatively engaging and engages your imagination, requires a lot of thinking. She must be talking about like just flipping the channels and watching something very stupid on TV that just sort of fries your brain and you know that's the kind of thing she has in mind. Anyway, that's interesting. But okay, but note that this blob life could be pleasant. 
You know, it could be a life that generates pleasure. And so, you know, we're trying to think about this distinction between meaningfulness and happiness. And if you characterize happiness as a hedonist, uh, it's just interesting to note that maybe there are certain kinds of ways of living in what she calls a blob life that could be very pleasurable. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe the hedonist would endorse certain kinds of, I mean, actually, the blob life, I guess it, in a way, kind of, in some way, resembles life in the experience machine, um, although it depends on what you would program, and maybe some of the things you would program would activate your mind in certain ways, but, but uh, that is interesting. Okay, so do you, does anyone remember this... Um, second kind of life that's meaningless that she talks about, which she calls uh, a life of useless activity. Does anyone recall what this kind of life uh, was all about? The life of useless activity. Right, like just running. Like someone who just shops all day, travels, but doesn't actually make any productive. Right, she describes it as like running errands and, yeah. Did that capture? Okay. That was good. Um, uh, yeah, let's read a tad on 839 in the first column. At the bottom... So I'm, I'm in the last full paragraph going up one, two, three, four, five lines from the bottom. She says, we may imagine, for example, one of the idle rich who flits about fighting off boredom, moving from one amusement to another. She shops, she travels, she eats at expensive restaurants, she works out with her personal trainer. So this also... Um, Wolf thinks is a meaningless life. Different kind of meaningless life than the blob life, but one that she calls the life of useless activity. But she also thinks that someone who's a workaholic, who's only focused on the acquisition of wealth, you know, think of someone like a workaholic corporate executive, that this is also a kind of person who lives a life of, of, of useless activity and not a meaningful life. I mean, these are interesting cases now in this next category because a lot of people live like this. And, you know, there aren't that many people that live the blob life fully, but there are plenty of people who live these kinds of active lives that are based on a lot of, you know, errands or being a workaholic and a kind of meaningless job um, being focused entirely on accumulating wealth and working really hard at it. But she thinks that all those kinds of lives are meaningless, and she's trying to, uh, you know, articulate this, this category of meaningless lives that um, she calls lives of useless, useless activity. So 
So by mentioning that kind of category, she's really getting us to kind of think about, well, what is it that makes those lives not meaningful? What's the difference between a meaningful life and a life that is a workaholic life and a meaningless job? You know, or just working to make a lot of money. What's the difference between working to make a lot of money and working really hard at it on the one hand, and on the other hand, having a meaningful life? Um, it's interesting that she articulates this life of useless activity because so many people live that kind of life and it forces her in the end to be clear about what it is that those people don't have that makes life meaningful. The second or the third kind of life that she thinks is um, meaningless is one she calls a bankrupt life. And these are maybe even less, I think this is a category that uh, she, I mean, in the end, she thinks that she might be wrong about this. I mean, she thinks that she's going to present this as a category of meaningless life, but then later on she's going to say, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. But what she says is, is that a person who's engaged in a potentially meaningful project but fails at it um, doesn't have a meaningful life. And you can think of like a business person who devotes her life to creating a business, but then ultimately the business goes bankrupt. Or a scientist who's close to an important discovery but gets beaten to the punch by another scientist. Or maybe a person in a romantic relationship who thinks it's a good one, but in the end, the, their partner turns out to be a fraud you know, or a liar. So she's thinking about those kinds, she's thinking about whether or not failure in your project, whether your project is science or creating a business, you know, a meaningful business, you know, not just making money, or uh, the project is a relationship what happens if that fails? Is that enough to make it not meaningful? And she's going to come around to think that, well, maybe that is meaningful, but it's just, you know, a little bit unfortunate. But, but in, the, in the beginning, she presents this as uh, one of the three kinds of meaningless lives. So after she goes through these three kinds of meaningless lives, she extracts some lessons from this about how to get clearer about what meaning in life is. And the first thing she does is say, in contrast, in contrast to the blob, a meaningful life has to be active. So that's one thing that she's going to say, is that a meaningful life has to be active. Here's a big one. She says that a meaningful life has to be one that's engaged in a project that has positive value. And this is in contrast to the life of just making money. You know, so her point is that just amassing wealth doesn't have positive value, according to her. Um, and so that's not going to be... She's gonna, this concept of positive value is going to be developed, and she's going to call it something else later, but positive value is what we'll focus on now. I mean... People, I mean, I imagine that people would, I mean, you know, you should have this question, like, why doesn't, 
accumulating wealth constitute positive value? I mean, you should be a little bit, you should question that and, and then see if she can, um, you know, satisfyingly answer you. But the other lesson that she draws by thinking about the third case is that a project, in order to be meaningful, has to be successful in contrast to the bankrupt life. But again, she's going to sort of second guess that. So then she has on page 840 a summary summarizing these things. And here's what she says at 840 um, in the first column near the top of the page. She says, a meaningful life is one that is actively and at least somewhat successfully engaged in a project of positive value. That's her first shot at this. A meaningful life is one that is actively and at least somewhat successfully engaged in a project of positive value. So there's a first shot at trying to figure out what, if, if you think of meaning in life as something you can create by engaging in certain projects, so she's trying to say that it has to be active, the project has to have positive value, and has to be somewhat successful. I mean, you can see what she's getting at with this successful bit, because if you're engaged in, like say you're trying to be a scientist, and you're terrible at it, and you just keep fail, 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 fail. You just, you know, that's not going to be meaningful. Like if you get hooked up in a meaningful project that is one that you're just not suited for, that's not going to lead to a meaningful life. And I think she's trying to get at something like that by saying that, um, you know, that it has to be at least somewhat successful. You also have to take what she means by project very broadly. But let me see what you... But even in even on page eight forty, there she's a little bit hedging her bets about successful, and she's even there saying relatively. What does she say? Um, at least somewhat successful. So she's a little bit hedging her bets about successfully. And I was going to say that we have to take project very broadly um, to include not only goal-directed kind of tasks like you would normally think of as projects, but also you want to include things like personal relationships. You know, someone can have the project of being a good daughter or have the project of being a good friend. You can engage in that project. So she wants to take project very broadly to include that kind of stuff. And she even says on page 840 that she means to include as projects things like coaching and planning a surprise party. And she's taking this very broadly. She's trying to be very inclusive with what she means by project. But project is a nice way to think about a kind of organized set of recurring activities, you know? Um, because your life's not gonna be meaningful by just doing something as a one-off, you know? But engaging in a project is something that you've organized your activities around and it's ongoing and, you know? So that's the kind of thing that she's getting at. She's, you know, we've seen that one of these requirements so far is that 
you have to be active. But then very quickly, she wants to refine that because she, she wants to say that she's not talking about mere activity. And we've seen that already because the, the life that is the life of useless activity, that's an active life, but there's something about that activity that's not the kind of activity she's talking about. So we need to think for a minute about what she means by the kind of activity that's required for a life to be meaningful. And what she says is, in trying to clarify what she means by this kind of activity, is that a person's projects must, must engage the person. And the way that she puts this on 840 is to say, I mean, the second column on 840, is to say that a person must see the projects they're involved in as, ex here's the quote, expressive of who she is and wants to be. There's, a, another interest, there's an interesting example that she talks about to try to bring this out. Uh, which is fascinating for a bunch of reasons. And so here's an example that she talks about. She talks about the alienated housewife. And this is an example of someone who's active, but who does not have meaning in her life, the alienated housewife. I mean, being a housewife is a very active project. Actually, it's fascinating. All these fictional depictions of housewives in the 50s and 60s the good ones really get at this idea of an alienated housewife. Um, there are a lot of good films about this, and actually uh, Mad Men, the TV series, really has some characters who are clearly alienated housewives. It's kind of fascinating. Um, so she's not referring to all housewives, but she's referring to housewives that are alienated, and what that means is that the activity, as she says is not expressive of who this person wants to be. If that's, that's what an alienated housewife is versus a housewife who's not alienated where the activity that she's engaged with is expressive of who she wants to be. She embraces the role. Let's read at 842nd column. And here's what she says. This is really uh, gets me. Um, 842nd column. One, two, three, four, five, six lines down from the top, she says, the alienated housewife presumably is active all the time. She buys groceries and fixes meals, cleans the house, does the laundry, chauffeurs the children from school to soccer to ballet, arranges doctor's appointments and babysitters. What makes her life insufficiently meaningful is that her heart, so to speak, isn't in these activities. She does not identify with what she's doing. She does not embrace her roles as wife, mother, and homemaker as expressive of who she is and wants to be. So you can contrast this alienated housewife with a housewife who actually does embrace the role and who does feel that this work embodies who she wants to be. And you can see the difference between the, the alienated housewife and the non-alienated housewife. Questions about that? I'm fascinated with that example for some reasons that I'll mention in a second, but, but first I'll just stop to see what you think about that example. So the alienated housewife's life is not meaningful because even though she's active doing all this stuff, 
that's valuable stuff. I mean, the stuff that the alienated housewife does is valuable. It's, it has positive value. But it, it's somehow in tension with who she wants to be. And so she doesn't experience it like it works in developing her, I mean, I want to say self-identity. Well, that's why I'm interested in the example because she seems to be flirting with this idea of self-identity or self-interpretation. What the philosopher Albert Borgman later will see will call centering. That there are certain projects that you can be involved in that center your life. And some philosophers, um, I'm thinking of Heideggerian philosophers, um, refer to this kind of meaningful self-identity as a self-interpretation. And did I give you guys the notes um, to this paper? Like all the way at the end of your reading are the notes there, the end notes. Um, if they're not, I'm going to read one to you. But if you do have the notes, look at note four. And if I gave, did I give it to you? No. I didn't? Okay. I should. Um, because it's good. So this kind of brings out, note four kind of brings out um, what's underlying this idea of the alienated housewife. And so I'm going to read it. She says, it seems to me, when we, where does note four, isn't there a, a footnote four? Wait, we were on 840. Oh, yeah, note four comes at the end of that paragraph. I was just curious. Now I'm going to read note four. So she says, it seems to me there is a further condition or qualification on what constitutes a meaningful life, though it does not fit gracefully into the definition I have proposed and is somewhat peripheral to the focus of this essay, namely that the projects that contribute to a meaningful life must be of a significant duration and contribute to the unity of the life or of a significant stage of it. I'm really interested in unity. A person who, to continue, a person who is always engaged in some valuable project or other, but whose projects don't express any underlying core of interest and value is not at least a paradigm of someone whose life is meaningful. Here perhaps there is something illuminating in making analogies to other uses of meaning for what is at issue here has to do with there being a basis for making sense of the life or being able to see it as a narrative. So the two things that I'm interested in in that footnote are one that the project should ideally unify the life, or at least a part of the life. And the other one is that the project helps us to make sense of ourselves, our identity, our self-identity. And that's the problem with the alienated housewife, is that she doesn't like the idea of making sense of her life as one of, as a housewife. 
It just doesn't, she, that's not who she wants to be. Um, but later when you read Albert Borgman, he really runs with this idea of certain projects centering your life. And he gives these great descriptions of this, like if you can imagine someone who's a musician, think about a person who's a musician. Wait, what's going on? It's freaking me out. Think about someone who's a musician. Is that someone in this room or is it a different room? Anyway. If someone is a musician, music kind of unifies their days. You know, they're really, they practice certain instruments, but they also, you know, go around the world and tap out rhythms or hear, sing melodies or whatever. They go to shows and they see music. And there's something really unifying about that project. Or think of someone who's a filmmaker who sees, or, or a fiction writer, who sees in behavior possible ideas for films or novels. And someone who's maybe a cinematographer or a photographer interested in the way things look and the way things are framed in life or the way things might be framed differently than they show up in life. So a project, like being a cinematographer, a filmmaker, a fiction writer, a musician, centers your life so that all things in your life show up as meaningful, grounded in that project. I love this idea. And she's getting at that with saying that this alienated housewife doesn't have a centering project. That there's, it's alienating because that's not who this woman wants to be. And she experiences all these activities as intention with her, you know, ideas of who she wants to be. Anyway, that's a little bit, you know, of a preview of the kind of thing we can talk about later in Susan Wolf, but also um, in Albert Borgman. And the idea is that meaningfulness, here's the big idea. Meaningfulness is connected to self-identity. And we create our self-identities by engaging in projects. Musician, filmmaker, writer, environmental lawyer, environmental activist, gun activist, whatever these projects are. Think about Martin Luther King. And think about the way that the civil rights movement centered his life. The Think about when Martin Luther King woke up in the morning and what he thought about. He did certain things that if we looked at them in isolation might not seem that meaningful. But if you look at them in the context of this project of the civil rights movement, they showed up as very meaningful for him. In the same way that, you know, if you're a drummer and you're sitting in your car you might notice that your windshield wipers are moving to a really interesting rhythm. And that could seem completely stupid to someone else, but to you it could be like, oh, wait a minute, I want to, what is that, you know? And so what, so the big picture about this that I'm fascinated by is that things that don't show up as meaningful abstractly will show up as meaningful 
within a project. And this is, you know, big picture, this is what these philosophers are talking about, is that if you find the project, not like the alienated housewife, but a project that speaks to you, then you can center your life through it, and then a lot of activities associated with the project show up as meaningful. This is really, I mean, this is really like cursing through my veins because I just finished a book that has a lot of this stuff in it. Borgman and Susan Wolf and stuff. And uh, um, so I just love this approach to, um, to meaningfulness. So the other part of this that I didn't elaborate on is this notion of self-interpretation. But the idea is that when you create your self-identity, what you're doing in a way is interpreting yourself as a particular kind of person. You know, if you're engaged in projects of filmmaking, filmmaking, that self-identity is an interpretation of you. You make sense of yourself through that um, self-identity, through that project. Anyway, um, uh, questions, thoughts, comments? I mean, what's so cool about that is that, you know, think about these moments when you feel like life is meaningless. I'm really thinking about Camus now. Um, you wake up in the morning, you shut off your alarm, you go brush your teeth, you have breakfast, you go wait for the bus, catch the bus, you go to school, you go to classes. That whole routine can seem very meaningless and you can feel very much like, what's the point of it all, you know? And what's interesting about these philosophers is that they point out that what's important is not the activities themselves, but how they're framed in a project. And if you find the right project for you, this is one way to put it, um, it can bestow meaning on activities that otherwise seem very meaningless. You know, when Martin Luther King woke up in the morning, had breakfast, went to wait for the bus, I don't know if he took a bus, drive, whatever, um, you know, he's, he wants to wake up in the morning because he wants to go tackle this challenge, go meet these people, negotiate this issue, go get involved in this protest. All the little things that he does in his life have meaning because they're all, sh they're all given an interpretation by this project. And they're all infused with meaning because in the terms of Albert Borgman, they center his life. And um, so it's a really nice, uh, this is in a way, Susan Wolfe is not an existentialist philosopher, but she's dealing with an existentialist issue. Albert Borgman is an existentialist philosopher. Um, and so in a way, we're sort of dipping into a philosophy called existentialism here which is, um, has to do with meaningfulness. Okay, so uh, I can't really start the next part because we only have a couple minutes left, so we'll quit a couple minutes early. And uh, next time I will we'll talk about the exam, which is a, which is a week from Thursday. And uh, have a good afternoon.